The second reading today is taken from Exodus chapter 1, verse 1 to 22. It can also be found on page 59 of the Pew Bibles. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali. Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too much numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pythum and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, must, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Gary. Well, good morning, friends. My name's John. And we're going to be studying... Exodus for this next term, and I'm really excited about studying this book. We'll in fact be doing not the whole book of Exodus, we'll be doing chapters 1 to 19 in this series, and then we'll be doing the Ten Commandments in another series next year, and then the rest of Exodus in another series. So you'll have to keep on coming back for a few years to get all of Exodus. But to begin, before we have a look at this passage, I want you to just turn to the person next to you, and I want you to ask a question, and that is, 
When did you first hear about the story of Exodus, if you can remember how old you were? Okay, so I'll just give you about 20 seconds, a quick question, and, and, and that will be good for me to get an idea. Okay, well, let me get your attention back. Who only heard about Exodus, or the story of Exodus, as an adult? Who heard of it as, so we've got a few hands. Uh, who heard of Exodus as a teenager? That was your earliest time you've heard about it? What about as children? That's the vast majority of us. Okay, that's, that's good to know. Uh, well, we'll have a look at this uh, study and this passage and this chapter, but we'll be learning it this time, obviously, as adults. What are we meant to understand from this passage? So let's, let's join in prayer once again, and we'll ask God for his help. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to this wonderful story of redemption, of deliverance, of what you did for your people. Help us to understand what it means for us even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story of Exodus, like what we've just seen, is something we're all familiar with, whether we learnt about it as an adult, as a teenager, and for the vast majority of us, as children. And I suspect we all learnt it from you know, little illustrations in, in children's Bibles, the the splitting of the Red Sea, the ten plagues, and, and perhaps even for some of us who are a bit older. Remember the Ten Commandments, that movie, Charlton Heston, you know, Let My People Go? Who, who's old enough to remember that? Uh, some of you are daring to put your hand up for that. It's a story, isn't it? A wonderful story from slavery to freedom, from bondage to liberation. It's in fact a story that continued to influence our history, human history. It's been the inspiration for different movements and revolutions from the Pilgrim Fathers who went to America to the anti-slavery campaigns in Britain to the African-American Civil Rights Movement and of course to feel it once again in Holocaust Germany. It's a story that has shaped history. It's a story of in a sense, our history. And it's a story that, in a sense, still speaks to the world today because it's a story that says there is still hope. There is still hope. You read this story and you feel that sense, there is still hope. Now, why is that? Because, you see, one of the big themes, as we'll see as we study Exodus, is God's unrelenting commitment to save his people for his glory. That's the theme of this book, God's unrelenting commitment to save his people for his glory and nothing will get in the way. No ruler, no power. And in this book we see that God continues to care for his people. He has never forgotten his people. He will act and he will save his people. God's unrelenting commitment to save his people for his glory. True back then, And true today as well. And we need to be reminded of this today as Australians, as Christians in Australia. And so let's turn to this this chapter, Exodus 1. As we turn to this, what you will notice, in fact, what you won't notice, is how the first sentence begins, how the first verse begins. What you won't notice in the English is how the Hebrew begins, and that is the Hebrew begins with a conjunction, with a word and, the word and. Now, in good English grammar, you never begin a sentence with and, let alone a book 
with the word and. But it's there in the, in the original to make a point. And the point is, the book of Exodus is a continuation of the book of Genesis. Not too difficult to understand. It's a connected story, even though it was separated by about 300 years. It's meant to be read together, and that's why in our first reading, we at least read the last part of Genesis. And last year, we remember, if you remember, we did the story of Joseph. We studied that, and that's online if you want to check that out. But Genesis ended on with a high. It was a positive ending to the book of Genesis. Joseph made the prime minister of Egypt. His family saved from the famine, brought to Egypt, given the best part of the land of Egypt, where they can grow, where they can flourish. It was good. It ended up with a high. But now we read Exodus chapter 1, and it begins with a low. Because after several hundred years, the people of God remained a displaced people. They did not belong in Egypt. They were aliens in Egypt. They were not yet living in the land that God promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's already been several hundred years. And so what has been happening over those hundreds of years? Well, they started off in Egypt with 70 people, quite a large family. But after several hundred years, verse 7, have a look. The Israelites were fruitful, increased and multiplied greatly, and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. And so over those hundreds of years, what was God doing? I mean, in their eyes, in their experience, it felt like God's forgotten them. It's been hundreds of years. We're still aliens in this land. We're still not in our promised land. What was God doing? Well, if, you're, if you were a careful listener as that chapter was read, you would have picked up that phrase that was repeated a few times throughout the chapter. What was that phrase? They multiplied. They increased. Do you see that? Verse 10, verse 12, verse 20. They multiplied. Now, why is that important? Why, why did the author begin Exodus 1 repeating that phrase? Well, it's why we need to understand and read Exodus in light of Genesis. Because that same theme, that same phrase, you can trace it all the way through the book of Genesis. It was, in fact, what God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You will multiply. You'll become numerous. You'll have plenty. You'll become a great nation. That's my covenant with you. But then you, you continue to trace it back, and it actually goes back to even Noah. After the flood, God said to Noah, multiply, be fruitful. In fact, you trace it all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, and what do we find? You find that same command to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now, now, why is that important? It's important to help us see that Exodus 1 is connected to Genesis and is connected all the way back to Genesis 1. It's all connected. And what it's telling us is that God is committed, even over hundreds of years, to do what he promised to do. God's committed to not merely the people of Israel, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not only to that people group, to that family, but God's commitment was to fulfill his plan for all humanity. All humanity. So we can't be reading Exodus 1 and think, oh, this is only to do with the Israelites. It's got nothing to do with us. No, it's actually got to do with all humanity. It's all connected, and so it's relevant for us today. Because again, what's the theme? 
the theme is God's unrelenting commitment to save his people for his glory. And that was starting to happen. As we read Exodus 1, small beginnings, but they were multiplying. A deserted, foreign land, but they were multiplying. And then we come back to this story. And what we find is that it goes from bad to worse for the people of God. But yet, they continue to multiply. Look at verses 8 to 10. Then a new king, most likely referring to also a new dynasty, who did not know Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they'll become even more numerous. Or more literally, the language is that multiply, lest they multiply. Same word used in verse 7. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave our country. And so what was Pharaoh's fear? Well, his fear was their land was being overtaken by these Israelites, these Hebrews. His fear was that there might be an uprising, a rebellion. His fear was that he might lose his entire workforce. They might leave the country. And so if you imagine Pharaoh in his responsibilities as as lord over the land, you can understand why he started putting these public policies of, of slavery. I mean, didn't make it wise, but you can understand why. Why he tried to control them in such a way. I mean, something we've seen throughout human history, isn't it? We've seen rulers do that all the time. You know, ethnic minorities targeted. I mean, we only need to think about last century. So many, so many experiences in our history of that. Hitler and anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany. Or South Africa, what happened there? You had the fights, you had the black threat between the Afrikaners and the black Africans. But here in this story, it was the Hebrews. But yet, on a cosmic level, what do you think was in fact happening? What was God doing? What was Pharaoh doing? Well, Pharaoh did not want the people of God to multiply. Pretty clear. But he had no clue at all, but he was in fact setting himself up against who? It wasn't just the people of God. He was setting himself up in opposition to God himself who wanted his people to multiply. He didn't want them to multiply. God did. Who will win? That is the question. This human ruler, in a sense, waving his puny fist at God. I don't want them to multiply. But God says, the supreme ruler, they will multiply. And Pharaoh will learn. And he'll learn a very hard way. And so what did he do? Well, he enslaved the entire race. State-sanctioned slavery. Now, we read it as a story, we read it in history, but imagine that happening. The entire people group enslaved. And there's archaeological evidence that the Egyptians treated their slaves with barbaric brutality, organised them in labour camps, forced them into building massive building projects, They were beaten into submission, ruthlessly treated. No dignity whatsoever afforded them. And so this is back in the time when, you know, no unions, no 40-hour weeks, no working from home. They were slaves 24-7. 
And we're told here, verse 11, they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. There's, in fact, evidence around 1500 or 450 BC. That's a long time ago. About 1500 BC, there were major building projects in the Nile Delta, which was where the Hebrews lived. And so what was the result? Egyptians were brutal and ruthless. The whips were out. The labor was brutal. Their lives were bitter. Their backs were broken. In fact, their spirits were broken. It was, in a sense, Pharaoh saying, you are mine. You serve no one else. You serve no other gods. You serve me. And so what do you expect to happen? You expect that nation to just crumble and die out. You expect the Israelites to eventually fizzle out. But what happened? They multiplied. Verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. God was unrelenting in his commitment to save his people for his glory. You see, what does it show about our God? What it shows about our God is that whatever God has purposed and whatever God has planned back then, today, you can't get in his way. There's no winning against God. Ruthless leaders, they might think they're winning, but not at all. I mean, that brings great comfort to our lives today as Christians. It should bring great comfort. Ruthless leaders, anti-God politicians, they get in God's way, but it will be futile. Even here in this story, the people of God were enslaved, but yet they multiplied. And so what do you do as Pharaoh? Well, you hope, you're hoping that surely I've broken their backs, I've broken their spirits, they will be subjugated, they will fizzle out. Well, as things went from bad to worse to even worse, Pharaoh now devises up a, a new plan, far more brutal, far more gruesome. I mean, he speaks to the midwives, verse 16. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Now again, I, I want us to just allow that to sink in a little bit. Imagine some ruler deciding to do such a thing, commanding, mandating, sanctioning such a thing. That was nothing short of ethnic cleansing, cultural genocide. It was certainly infanticide, killing off infant babies, boys. And why kill off the boys? We well, see, in the ancient world, it was the males who were the bearers of the essence of the people. You kill off the boys. Eventually, you kill off their culture. You kill off their identity. Not only that, but Pharaoh was obviously afraid that they would raise up soldiers. But you see, the females, we can't allow them to live because eventually they'll be absorbed far more easily, assimilated into Egyptian culture, take them as wives. And eventually, the Israelite people group, their culture, their identity would disappear. But again, think about what Pharaoh commanded. It's just ruthless, cruel gruesome, state-sanctioned killing of infants just as they're born. Now I want us to reflect on that for a moment. Do you think our world has gotten better or worse? 
than the time of Pharaoh. Better or worse? State-sanctioned killing of infants just as they're born. I don't know what you think, but I don't think our world has changed all that much. In fact, perhaps it's gone worse. You read this and you think, that is ruthless, that's evil. How could anyone do such a thing? It's heartless. But has our world changed? Now, we don't talk about this all too much, but I think here we need to. And I'll say something about this, but before I say anything about it, a partial word. And that is, if it is your experience in your past that something like this has happened, then I want you to know that there is full forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Full forgiveness, absolute forgiveness. If you're repentant, if you're sincere in that, you turn to him. But I don't think the world has changed all that much. Back then, state-sanctioned killing of babies just after they're born? What does our government sanction today or legalise? The killing of infants before they're born, just as callous and brutal. Just as callous. And so what did these two midwives do? Shipra and Pua. Well, the law of the land, the highest power in the land says, you must kill. But you imagine these midwives, they're thinking, in my heart, I cannot go against the highest power in the universe. I cannot go against God. I fear God more than any man, even if disobeying will mean my life. And so verse 17 the midwives, however, feed God and do not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Now, it's fascinating how they responded to Pharaoh. You pick that up, verse 19. What did they say? Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Now, what are we to make of that? Were they actually just speaking the truth or were they you know, lying? And can we justify a lie? Are there circumstances in life where we can justify lies? Well, it's clear in Scripture that we must be truthful people, honest all the time with all our words. However, here, what God honoured at that moment was not so much what they said, but what they did. And they feed God. And again, it's not too different to what we have seen in our history. I mean, I pick up on, on the illustration of Nazi Germany because there's so many similarities. During Nazi Germany, many, in fact, lied to SS soldiers about harboring Jews in their homes. And so you've got Joanna Eck, Berlin housewife, who hid Jews in her small apartment. Irina Sendler smuggled children out of Warsaw ghettos. Clara Bake. Serbian single mum who shepherded two, who sheltered two Jewish boys in her home. And Liz, Elisabetta Struhl, young Romanian worker who sheltered Jewish neighbours. So many more stories just like that. Why? They feed God. And perhaps here, the midwives, in their response to Pharaoh, they perhaps a slight underhanded way of making a mockery of the Egyptians. And what was that mockery? You Egyptians are you know, a bit weak, but the Hebrews, they're tough. But what did God think? Well, we, midwives in that culture, generally, of the lower social status. They were like nobodies. 
had no families of their own, no children of their own. They were the nobodies in society. But God used them and honoured them. God gave them families of their own. And what happened to the people of God? You think, well, kill off the boys. Well, they continued to multiply. Nothing could stop what God had planned. Verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. Isn't it fascinating? Pharaoh wanted the people subjugated, gone, fizzling out, disappear. But yet, under oppression, enslavement, persecution, they multiplied. They became more and more numerous. And Pharaoh here outsmarted by these two nobodies. And so that's the story of Exodus 1. Now we need to ask, what does it have to do with us today, 2023? Well, what we, we must remember when we read any part of Scripture, especially even stories that were thousands of years ago, the same ruler of the world now is the same ruler who ruled and reigned back then. And the same God who was unrelenting in his commitment to save his people for his glory is the same God who acts in such a way today, unrelenting in his commitment to save his people for his glory. You see, it's a truth that needs to be the bedrock of our faith today as Christians. Because life will often get us to doubt that. Doubt that God cares. Doubt that God is in control. And we often feel differently. But again, we consider the situation of the Hebrews in Exodus. I mean, they were meant to be the covenant people of God. They got the promises of God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But nothing of their circumstances showed that that was true. I mean, they were just trying to survive. They were slaves. They were working these, these terrible Jobs as slaves treated terribly, no human rights whatsoever. You put yourself in their shoes and you'll be asking, I mean, remember, this is not just a month, a year, a few years. It was for generations, hundreds of years. Where is God in all of this suffering to our people? What is God doing? It seems like God is nowhere to be found. And I suspect we can identify with that type of questioning, with those type of doubts. Where is God in my suffering today? I mean, I've been suffering not just for a day, but for a long time. Where is God? Has he forgotten me? Because I look around, it seems like the other Christians, they're doing pretty well. It seems like God's caring for them. But where are you, God, in caring for me? I think it was only the other week. I spent quite a number of hours with a guy who visited us. Spent a few hours just listening to his life. He came in deep distress. Life was absolutely broken. Running away, aimless, without purpose, without hope, without any sense of stability whatsoever. So despairing of life, hating life. And, and, and the story of his life was re really, in, in reality, going from bad to worse to worse. And then we got to hear more of his story and went to even worse. It was just heartbreaking to hear his question, where is God? 
Why God? But when we come back to this story, was God acting? Was God working? Was God working to bring about his purposes? Well, we read it and we say, well, of course he was. Of course he was. But you put yourself in the shoes of the Hebrews, you would not see that whatsoever. You were enslaved. Your life was miserable. You're despairing of life itself. You will not see anything of what God was doing at all. Sure, you're having kids and having babies and they're growing up and having babies. But you will not see that that was part of God's big plan for humanity. But all along, of course, God was orchestrating. Even in their suffering, even in the suffering of his people, even through the ruthlessness of Pharaoh, God was orchestrating the coming of their deliverer, which we'll see next week. But I want you to imagine now, what would have happened if the people of God in Egypt did not suffer? What do you think their life would have been like? If they were not targeted, if they were not marginalised, if they were not enslaved, what would their life be like? Well, eventually it would just be so comfortable and I would just take on the Egyptian ways and I will take on the Egyptian gods. I'll blend in with everyone else and I'll have no need to leave Egypt at all. Forget the promises, forget the promised land. I'll be too comfortable. And eventually they would have lost their identity they would have lost their, that sense that we are different, we are distinct, we are not meant to be here. Home is not here in Egypt. And so Pharaoh, in his cruelty, in fact, helped preserve their identity. Isn't that fascinating? Pharaoh, in his cruelty, helped preserve their identity, helped them stay close and distinct, helped them Keep on longing for the promises of God. This is not home. We are longing for the promised land. You see, Pharaoh had no idea that he was doing that. But in his cruelty, he was being used by God like a pawn. You see, what God was doing, and we have to hear this, what God was doing, one of the ways in which God preserved the identity of his people was in suffering, even slavery. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the, the great Baptist preacher, he, he, he put this well. He said, In all probability, if they had been left to themselves, they would have been melted and absorbed into the Egyptian race and lost their identity as God's special people. They were content to be in Egypt and they were quite willing to be Egyptianized if things were going well. And I want you to reflect on that. I, I, I wonder whether you know, that happened with Christianity in much of the Western world. Life is good. It becomes all normalized and we blend in with everyone else. And then Spurgeon went on to say, In order to cut loose the bonds that bound them to Egypt, the sharp knife of affliction must be used. And Pharaoh, though he knew it not, was God's instrument in weaning them from the Egyptian world and helping them as his church to take up their separate place in the wilderness and receive the portion which God had appointed for them. You see, it was not despite their suffering, but in their suffering, 
God kept them lowing, lowing, yearning for the promised land. And there's so much similarities to our experience in this world, in our lives. Because you see, in our suffering, we must remember, just like it was for them, it's not accidental. Very often we do not see what God is doing. God does not tell us why we suffer. And we may never find out why until we get to heaven. But God keeps us longing in our suffering that this is not home. Melbourne is not home. Our home is the promised land, the new heaven and the new earth that Jesus in his death and resurrection secured for us. Otherwise, what might happen? Otherwise, we'll get too comfortable with our home here. Too comfortable. We blend in. And Christianity becomes normalized, which is exactly what we're seeing throughout the Western world. Nothing too distinct. We lose our identity. And isn't that what has happened in Australia? I mean, such that today you look at some churches and you think, it's no different to the world inside and outside the church. Same values, same beliefs, same way of living. No difference at all. But in suffering, God keeps us longing for that great promise of the new heaven and the new earth. And then when we consider not just our lives as individuals, but us as the church corporately, I mean, again, reflect on their experience. It was bad for them. It's not that bad for us now. Not at all. Nowhere near. But I think it's still fair to say, without playing the victim's card, the victim card, have pity on me. We don't want that. We don't need that. Never play the victim card. But I think it's still fair to say, when it comes to the Western world, though it was built on the Judeo-Christian heritage, the Western world has thrown that heritage in the bin. Such that today, in public discourse, it doesn't matter that there are so many different religions that hold to the same values as Christians. Family values what it means to be a father and mother, what it means to be a man and woman, what we understand of gender, of marriage. I mean, there are many religions that hold to very similar views as Christians, but at least in the public sphere, what do we see? Well, Christians seem to get the unfair treatment. But my question is, does it matter? Does it actually matter that Christians are targeted well, we can be all up in arms, and on one level, of course it does matter. We want fairness, we want justice. But on another level, what does this story teach us? You see, when Pharaoh was up against the Hebrews, he was ruthless, he was callous, he was cruel in his treatment. He was, in fact, bringing about the purposes of God without him knowing. And not only that, who was he, in fact, contending with? It wasn't with the people. He was setting himself up in opposition to God himself. To God. And who's going to win that battle? Pharaoh or God? You see, today there will be politicians and leaders of countries and nations and states who are against Christians. There will be, and there are. We know that. Against the church disassociate 
anything from God, from Jesus, from Christians. Who are they contending with? Not with us. What can we do? They're contending against God. And who will win that battle? You see, in Australia, we're not sure about what will happen with religious freedom, whether Christians will continue to enjoy the freedoms we enjoyed for since the beginning of Australia. We may lose it. But if we do, we remember this story. All opposition against God will end up being futile, even though it looks like they're winning. And we see this in history. During the Reformation, so many reformers were burnt at the stakes. But what happened to the church? It grew. It continued to grow. During communist China, in the 50s, when they expelled all Western missionaries from China, they thought they'll kill off Christianity. It will stop, it will cease to exist in China. But what happened? It only served to strengthen the church. It indigenized the church. Certainly not easy under persecution, but it grew. In the 70s, when the president of Ethiopia implemented what was called the Red Terror, one and a half million people killed, churches closed down. What happened to the church? Well, Christians continued to meet secretly in homes, and the church not only survived, but it grew. You see, that is what we need to remember. Jesus will build his church and the gates of Hades and the political leaders and the rulers of the world will not overcome it. And one final note from this passage. As we come back to this passage, who was it that God honoured in the end? I mean, who was the most powerful person in this story? It was Pharaoh. It was Lord. It was King. It was the ruler of all. But we don't even know his name. Isn't that surprising? Why is that? We don't even know his name. He would have had monuments and statues built in his honour. He would have been revered and feared in his generation. But we don't even know his name. Why is that? You see, it's no accident that it wasn't recorded down. If it was recorded down, it will make it so much easier for historians. Hundreds of years they've been trying to work out which pharaoh was this. Countless PhDs written about it. Working out which pharaoh was this, no one knows. In fact, even in Genesis, the names of other kings were recorded. The kings of Elam, Goyim, Sodom, Gomorrah, Salem, they were recorded, but not this pharaoh. Why? Because the ones who were important to God... Apart from the names of Jacob's family at the beginning, the only other names are the names of the two nobodies. The only other names are the names of the two women of low standing, the lowly midwives. Shipra, which means beautiful one, and Pua, which means splendid one. And their names goes down in history. Thousands of years later, we remember them. They were the ones honoured by God. Why? Because they feared the Lord. They aligned themselves, not with the world, but with God and his purposes. And they were blessed. They were remembered. I mean, that's the principle of the New Testament. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. 
And so finally, it's a call to us as we finish. It's a call to us. If this is how God is, do we fear the Lord like them? Their name's written down in Scripture. But you see, when we, when we come to the full story of, of the New Testament, of the Gospels, there's another book in which names were written down on. What book was that? That will last into all eternity. It's the Lamb's Book of Life. You see, in the end, God will achieve what he set out to achieve. They will multiply. Not just the Israelites. Remember, Exodus 1 is connected to Genesis 1. It is about all humanity. In the end, they will multiply. God's people will multiply. And they are the people who fear the Lord, who come to know and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are the ones who will stand as part of that great, great vision in Revelation. I look, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, not just the Israelites, from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Shipra, Pua, there, and us who trust in the Lord Jesus and fear the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider this passage, as we have reflected on it, we can see your power, your plans, your wonderful purposes, that you are unrelenting in your commitment to save your people for your glory. And so help us, Lord, today, as your people, to cling on to that and to fear you as the God and ruler over all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.